0: Hello and welcome to Quo Institute's Rethink, a podcast that will supply you with thought-provoking approach to and reflection on some of the most challenging issues of our day.
1: This is the first of a series of podcasts focusing on a recently published book called The Robot Will See You Now, Artificial Intelligence and the Christian Faith. Uh, and this book is edited by John Wyatt and Stephen Williams, and John is with us today. Uh, he's the first guest um, to talk about this book with us. Um, John, welcome.
0: Thanks very much. Yeah, it's good to be here.
1: Good. John uh, is Emeritus Professor of Ethics and Perinatology at University College London. Uh, he's also a senior researcher at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion in Cambridge. He is an, ac- an expert in the interface between medical ethics, technology and Christianity and is currently leading a research project on the social, ethical and theological implications of advances in artificial intelligence and robotics. At least that's what the beginning <laughs> of the book says. So I assume that is still very much up to date.
0: <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful, but yeah, uh, basically I'm interested in robots. Yes,
1: <laughs> it, yeah, AI and robots. Um, So, John, um, you edited the book. You wrote two articles um, in it. Uh, It it discusses the intersection of a whole variety of topics, um, anthropology, theology, questions of science, music, literature, um, and quite a bit more, uh, and AI. Um, And as you edited this book with Stephen uh, Williams, um, what were your hopes for this book? What was the gap you hoped it would fill? What what kind of... spurred on the idea of writing it
0: yeah no i've been interested in artificial intelligence uh for, for, for quite a few years i suppose you know like many people i've i've read quite a lot of science fiction and uh, been fascinated with the science fiction ideas and i've been puzzled that there's been so little serious christian thinking about um this material and mm. um and that was really why i then uh, persuaded the faraday institute to um undertake a research project uh, trying to get theologians and people from other disciplines uh, to, to focus seriously on the questions of artificial intelligence and um mm. this book really comes out of that um that research project and I, The attempt is to say, look, we really need to think about this. I mean, it seems strange to me. I mean, theologians have have grappled with quite a lot of of weird stuff. You know, there have been books written about, for instance, the theology Mm. of of alien intelligences on other planets or on uh, quite recherche things about transhumanism Mm. and so on. But surprisingly little about artificial intelligence, whereas I feel that, you know, when we look at the world out there, this is a sort of runaway train, enormous speed, which is influencing so much of our lives. And and so the aim of the book was just to try and at least raise some of the questions. I mean, uh, across a wide range of different topics.
1: Mm. And, and that absence of Christian reflection on the implications and the nature of AI, do you think that... Um, where does that come from? Is it because there is kind of a, a a fear about it or is it not being taken seriously enough or is it just kind of seen too niche?
0: I mean, to be honest, I, I still don't fully understand it. I think there are several things. I think that just a lot of theologians and philosophers and so on come from a humanities background. And, and part of the problem with, you know, British style education in particular is that they give up science. You know, from the age of 15, and mm. they're just not interested in it. They find science, technology, physics, all that stuff just boring. And and so their their whole world is, is in is in the humanities. And mm. I th- I think that's part of the reason. I, I think I think part of the problem is that is that a lot of these issues are genuinely new. You know, in, in my previous work working as a medical ethicist dealing with issues like abortion and end of life issues suffering pain what what you r- rapidly realize is is that people uh, philosophers and christians have been thinking about these issues for uh, 20 centuries you know they go the church mm-hmm. fathers wrote about Abortion and about suicide and death and dying and so mm. on. But when you go back and read the Church Fathers, they have very little to say, surprisingly little, about artificial intelligence and, and um, about about computers and about artificial minds and simulation and mm. so on. So So I think there are some very genuinely new issues here. And for some reason, it's also very unfashionable. I think I got the impression from some theologians that, you know, if they were to address, write an article about Christianity and robots, you know, it'd be a good way of destroying their careers. So it was it was Mm -hmm. much better just to avoid the topic altogether.
1: Yeah. Well, you're talking to someone who's a specialist in like early medieval Christology. So for me, it's kind of the like I understand, you know, questions of personhood. But then when we start introducing robots, I'm like, I just don't even know where to begin. Um, so I can see, I can see where the the hesitation comes from from many of these um, arts people or art scholars or humanities scholars like myself. Um, so now that you have started from a kind of Christian perspective to think about these questions of AI, do you think that there is a particular strength um, or a particular added value that having a kind of Christian um, point of departure when discussing these or wondering about these questions that AI introduces, is there something of strength that the Christian perspective does bring?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's interesting, it's two-way. I think that wrestling with these topics i think as christians we have something very distinctive to offer in the secular world i mean ethics of artificial intelligence is now a growth industry uh in many Mm. across the world many many universities are setting up specialist institutes and so on again there's very little christian uh input into these um into these areas and I, i do think that as as Christians, we do have some very unique um, perspectives, Uh, one of which, interestingly, is that we really take evil seriously. Um, One of the fascinating things is if you take a a sort of standard, what's often called a physicalist understanding of the universe, that in the end all all that's there is is matter, is electrons and protons and molecular stuff, then Mm. there really isn't a category for evil. Evil there's a, there's a category for accidental mishaps, uh, uh, mm. but, but the, for for what we understand as, as, as malevolence, personal malevolence, it, it just doesn't compute. It doesn't, it doesn't function. whereas as Christians, we, we have a very definite category for evil. It's something mm. that there's been a great deal of reflection and, uh, uh, and an understanding, a respect, you know, for the power of evil, and but at the same time, an understanding of how important it is to, to, to recognize that. And and uh, I mean, it, 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 just to take one example, you know, Mark Zuckerberg says, "I want to connect every person on the planet, you know, through Facebook." You know, what can possibly go wrong? You know, he they they mm-hmm.
1: they,
0: they thought this was just going to lead to new um vistas of human cooperation and uh, you know global mm. global um connection and so on and, if, and yet what the history of facebook has shown is a, an outpouring of all kinds of violence people have died as a result of facebook people you know huge um disinformation campaigns manipulations cyber crime you name it and mm. um why does that happen why does it happen that when you unite human beings around the planet that that new forms of evil seem to come pouring out well i think as christians we have a take on that and, and a perspective which is 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 unique uh, in or at least is very unusual within the um, within the wider zeitgeist
1: so are you kind of saying that the concept of evil that is um, enshrined within kind of the 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 christian story as we know it um raises the bar of kind of the seriousness that the ai or the developments in ai should be thought through well because if it doesn't go you know it's not if it doesn't go well it's not just a a a sentence or a non event because it actually means that there is evil that that could come out of it is that the
0: yes the and and i, and I think a, an understanding of how uh, evil emerges. I mean, mm. you know, in Christian thinking, yes. this is the idea that every human being is fallen; that 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 every mm. human heart has has hidden and and, and fallen aspects, flawed aspects, and mm. therefore, when you connect people at a very intimate level, you know, from a Christian perspective, we're not surprised that some very negative things can then
1: emerge,
0: mm. and and therefore, I think a greater reflection about evil and so on um and and therefore a greater caution i think and the need i th- you know i think the need for damage limitation the need the need mm-hmm. for uh techniques for limiting evil and restraining it uh, are become mm-hmm. very important
1: yeah i can see that um the main thing i'm always wondering um and this is something that kind of spur- was spurred on by the first article in your book is that When we talk about AI um, generally, or at least when I talk about it with a rather untrained um, technical mind, um, the first thing that always comes up is its relationship to human intelligence, right? Are we able to imitate? Are we able able to kind of um, reproduce um, whatever a human being is able to do? And to me, one of the big questions that underlie that is, first of all, how do we understand human intelligence? What does it look like before we even can start trying to replicate it? We need to understand what it is in itself before we can even attempt to do the second part of that task. Um, and you ask yourself in that third article a question. Um, are human beings machines? Is that the way that our minds function? Um, if that is the approach, what does that do for AI, and why do you think that that is an unhelpful way of um, how to understand human intelligence?
0: Yeah, and, and these are very deep and complex issues. But I mean, just to stand back a bit, it, to me, I think it's it's fascinating that as we start to think about intelligent machines, it immediately raises the question: What does it mean to be human? And and mm. I do see this as a constant theme. I've seen this. In my career as, as a medic, you know that every time technology advances and some new possibilities become possible in, in within the field of medicine, immediately it raises new questions. What does it mean to be human? What, and I think that artificial intelligence is is asking this question in a new way and um, this fundamental question of, of of how can we understand ourselves? And certainly, there are lots of people, and particularly the scientists and and that though these people who are physicalists who would say mm. if if the the it must be the case that there is that we are nothing but connections that's what a human being is that's what a human brain is it's just bits of wiring and cells and electrical impulses mm. going to and fro and if that is the case that um that's, that's what a human brain consists of, then there's no fundamental reason why that cannot be carried out by mm-hmm. silicon pieces of silicon and, and wires instead of bits of, of meat and, and flesh. And, mm-hmm. um, and therefore we should expect machines to be capable of copying and, um repeating what what the human brain does, but also because our machines are so much more efficient than our brains, and because they're so much mm. more powerful and because they're getting more powerful every every year or two, we should expect mm. the machines to be capable of doing much more than human beings so so there's a there's a sense in which the uh physicalist scientists and technologists are already primed to expect. The machines mm-hmm. to be the same as us and actually to be better than us now i mm. personally think there are lots of reasons for thinking that that's far too simplistic and naive and that really the way that we think as human beings is is completely different from the way that machines function and, mm. and part of that is is because we are mammals we are not um bits of silicon and mm. therefore the way we think is a mammalian way of thinking. It's, it's, a, it's a, a way that is uh, an embodied way of thinking, a, a way of engaging with the world, which happens when you are a mammal and, mm. and where you've grown out of the body of another mammal. And uh, you know, you've got a young daughter, of a few months old and you're seeing the way that she is interacting mm. with the world and learning about it, reaching out and touching and trying mm. to uh, engage and smiling and falling over and crying and so on. So all the experiences mm. of her thinking is embodied in a mammalian way of being in the world, which a machine, of course, has no, it's, it's, it's a completely different kind of existence.
1: So. In the world of theology, we often use the or words of qualitative and quantitative difference when we talk about how someone conceives of physical reality and the person of God. So we would say, you know, is someone conceiving of God in a quantitatively different way or a qualitatively different way? Are they different fields of existence or is the God just like human beings, but ultimately bigger? Um It almost sounds a bit like that. I'm not saying that there's an analogy that's perfect there, but it almost sounds like you're saying that there is almost a a, a qualitative difference between the type of way in which a human mammal knows experiences is in the world and the way in which we can imitate some of those aspects in the computer. Is that fair? It's not like a quantitative thing, but a qualitative thing.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah, that's what I I believe. And I think there's a lot Mm. of scientific and philosophical evidence to support that, quite outside Christian thinking, if you mm. just take the way that we engage with the world. One of the fascinating mm. things, you know, is that modern uh, investigation of neuropsychology has shown that, for instance, when we we can't avoid embodied metaphors of thinking. So when we think about the future, we're looking forward. And when we think about the past, we're looking back. Mm-hmm. When we're reaching outside, when we're feeling uncertain, we're, we're feeling our way, we're, you know, the the whole way we think is always in terms of a physical being located in space who's reaching, mm-hmm. reaching out to others. We cannot think otherwise than in an embodied three-dimensional way uh, because mm-hmm. that's our sole experience. And mm-hmm. um, so I do think there is a, a qualitative difference between the way we think and the way machines think. And I think part of the problem is the the loose use of language. So it's very common to say, well, the the machine is seeing this, the machine understands this, the machine remembers, the machine understands, the machine is calculating. All those words are things that only human beings can do. And when we apply Mm. them to a machine, we should have scare quotes around them. It's only pretending to see, it's only pretending to understand. It doesn't really understand anything.
1: Hmm. So, um, how when we kind of one of the lines that is in your article, but also I read a couple of the other articles, um, around it in the book, um, which which is tied into this question of essentialist or non-essentialist, physicalist or non physicalist understandings of human beings, but also of personhood. What is it for a human being to be a person, and at what point are we going to say that? A a kind of humanoid bot. I don't know if that's the correct <laughs> term, but would would be a person. Um, you talk a little bit about patency. Patency, I think that's how one would pronounce that. Capacity to suffer, um, consciousness, morality um, of building than a bot that is capable of suffering. Um, could you just connect those uh, thoughts with each other? Because it's a, a more technical part of the chapter. I don't know.
0: Yes. If no. That. No. I, it's uh, and. Uh... And again, one just has to say, these issues are very complex. And and the more you Mm -hmm. go down the rabbit hole, the more complicated they become. But so a fundamental issue is, is a machine capable of suffering? Mm. Um, Because part of the reason which we both respect other human beings and treat them with care. But if you think about it, we also respect... Uh, kittens we respect animals we respect any being that has apparently the capacity to suffer uh, mm. and and so we don't know what it's like to be a kitten but we instinctively feel that to deliberately torture an animal um, it, like that is is bad for the animal and also bad for us uh, to inflict mm. knowingly to inflict pain and so then mm. the question is how should we treat these apparently intelligent beings, uh, particularly if they seem to suffer? I mean, you can already mm. get these little. There's, there's a creature called a Furby, which is like kind of little, little uh, furry animal, which is entirely uh, artificial and, and it just has a little voice box in it and a, and a little and a, and a little beak. And a little beak. And apparently, yeah. if you hold a Furby upside down and shake it, it goes, me scared, me scared, me frightened, no, me, no like, no, no like. And and then the question is, you know, how do human beings respond if you ask people to hold a Furby upside down and keep it there while it's saying that it's scared? How does that make you feel? And the interesting thing is that mm-hmm. most human beings say, I can't do this. I'm sorry. You know, I, that's wrong. And and the, and, and yet... With intellectually, they know that it's just a little piece of of um, of machinery. So I think yeah. this is tapping into something quite deep about: um, is it possible that, that machines can suffer, or even if they appear to suffer? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, should we? Because if you fast forward ten years, maybe maybe you you got a robot in your in your home. You know, and 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 the robot is designed so that it cries if you hit it, and and you know, should you be ina- allowed to to torture quotes your robot? Should should you be allowed to inflict damage while mm. it screams to enact fantasies, or should there be laws to um, to say you're not? just as there are laws about animal cruelty, should there be laws about robot cruelty? I mean, that maybe sounds just like science fiction, but actually these are very serious questions um, Mm -hmm. about, and what I've come to realise, of course, is the problem is that you can never know whether the robot feels. There's no way that you will know whether it's conscious. All you have is its behaviour. All you have is what it says Mm -hmm. and does. And if in the end its behaviour is so convincing, mm. then we there are at least some people who are arguing we have to give it the benefit of the doubt. We have to treat it as though it was conscious, as mm. though it could suffer, even though we're not certain whether it's real.
1: Hmm. So it's almost at this point in time when the questions are, we can see the first signs of these kind of ethical, moral questions Um Coming into the reality of our of our lives, but not to the point that they might actually kind of we're we're practically confronted with these issues yet. A similar um, kind of observation regarding the possibility, like the, the challenging possibility of AI if it continues in a particular direction is seen in your second chapter, which deals a bit more with medical healthcare specifically. Um, and you uh, you make the observation one of the possibilities of an increased use of AI in a medical context is a greater distance um, between patient and physician, um, or kind of a a less easy access to a physician um, from a patient's point of view. Um, And then in the latter part of your chapter, you say that it is actually presence and solidarity uh, that are key, key aspects to a Christian understanding of um medical health or or healthcare of the medical profession so um, how do you see those two things working together and and at what point can ai become in the future one of those challenges that we might have to start thinking about now to avoid it actually getting there
0: yes and 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 this comes down again to how you understand human to human relationships what 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 you understand mm-hmm. about it and again if you take a kind of physicalist materialist Technological approach to relationships. What you say is the purpose of human relationships is basically to make you feel good, to make you have a nice, warm feeling inside. And if talking to your Alexa or talking to your robot or talking to some s- synthetic uh, voice can, can reproduce the same feelings inside you, can make you feel good, and make you feel warm, here is somebody who understands me, um, then then what's the problem? i mean mm. uh, arguably it might be better to have a synthetic carer for for a lonely elderly person uh, than mm. than a human being i mean you know the, the the humanoid robot is not going to take up elder abuse it's not going to steal it's not going to um you know it can always be reprogrammed and monitored it's always patient it's always smiling it's always kind why do we need human carers? You know, they're much cheaper. The they'll be there twenty four seven. They'll be much better programmed, and so on. And so, I'm asking the question: How are we going to say argue whether or not human carers are absolutely essential in healthcare? And and I'm trying to argue the case that. The point about a machine is that it knows nothing about what it means to suffer It knows nothing about what it means to be anxious, to be um, to be faced with the unknown, to be facing death and so on. Whereas it seems to me mm. part of as as a human carer myself working as a doctor, when I'm trying to support people who are facing catastrophe. um Part of my job is to say, I, too, am a human being like you. I know what it means to be scared. I know what it means to be terrified about death and losing a loved one and suffering mm. and so on. And I'm going to come and walk alongside you as a, mm. as a wise friend. And and that's part of what we have to offer as human carers that, that no machine, however sophisticated, can ever do.
1: Mm and then it is it it lies not only with because i mean a machine can say the words right it can say the words of i know what it's what it's like to be afraid or um but there is something about the empathy or the realization or the belief um and maybe that's the kind of the niggle that you one could still argue that it's n- not necessarily about the um, perhaps not the empathy actually having to be there but the person who receives it believing, believing that yes. the empathy is there <laughs> yeah um well I think, I think you know that's a yeah. cynical
0: that's a cynical view you know it says yeah, you know, well it it says you know the most important thing in all relationships is authentic- authenticity but if we can simulate yeah. authenticity then we have really arrived <laughs> a <lie>, a right.
1: <laughs> yes yeah no and i think i think you're right that there will probably always be something if you know that that it's that the empathy is simulated and not real that it doesn't quite have the same effect as actually talking to someone who you know has gone through something similar or you have to believe that has gone through something similar. and and
0: this again i think is, is where there's an interesting take from the christian perspective because what the christian perspective says uh is both that there is a human to human solidarity because we are both made the same made in god's image but even Mm. astonishingly that God himself is a God who suffers. He doesn't just appear to suffer, but God himself Mm. experiences in Jesus the the full awfulness of suffering. And therefore he can Mm. uh, give us, he can have solidarity with us. He has been, he's suffered along with us. So, So that solidarity and suffering I mean, in the Greek, it's this interesting word koinonia, isn't it? The participation in suffering mm. is, is very deeply rooted in, in Christian thinking about these mysteries.
1: Mm. Great. Well, John, thank you so much um, for your time. We've, we've kind of come to the end of our time, but I just wanted to say that I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, especially as someone who's not very technically um, savvy myself and has gone through humanities degrees. I really, really enjoyed um, the grace and the kindness with which the authors have kind of introduced the topics that are really quite technical. Um, So if anyone uh, would be interested to read the book, um, I know it's published with SPCK, um, is it available through the major bookstores um, in the UK? It is.
0: It's available uh, online from Amazon from uh, and online booksellers and from the major books bookstores, uh, both in the UK and across the world.
1: Great. Um, and uh, John and I have together also worked on a study guide, which should also be online uh, soon. So um, thank you so much for your time, John. Um, and we look forward to talking to you in the future again. Thanks very much. Um, many thanks. Thank you.
0: And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this session of the Quovaris Institute's podcast, Rethink. And I trust you
1: have been inspired and encouraged to do just that, Rethink.